welcome to part four of Captain Smith and Jamestown, the real story, at 1001 Stories for the Road. In part three, we joined John Smith as he signed on with the armies of the French Duke of Mercure in the battle with Austria against the Turks, which were fighting against Christian armies to expand the Muslim Ottoman Empire throughout what were called the lower countries of Europe, Romania, Hungary, Transylvania, and parts of modern-day France. These wars were constant and brutal, and it was not unusual for 10,000 men to fall on a battlefield in a single battle. Sieges of walled cities and castles were commonplace. Death and destruction reigned in Europe for centuries. What Smith was to learn from surviving this was invaluable, and it gives us a better look at how he perceived the Indians of the New World, which, with their crude bows and lack of metal weapons, did not present as great a threat to him as did the Turks. Therefore, he was able to use his past experience in dealing with new situations, which would allow him to enter Indian camps fearlessly, to try to converse with their leaders, to make alliances, to maintain a strong defense, and to carry on his mission of trying to establish a colony for the English in Virginia. What he probably least expected was all the treachery, subterfuge, jealousy, greed, and plotting against him that went on from his own people. It began on the ship as soon as they left port, and it never did end. Here in part four, we cover the remainder of his exploits in Europe, and then we return to Jamestown. We will condense the story of Smith's capture and the story of the great act, which is what it was, of Pocahontas saving Smith from being bludgeoned to death while in Powhatan's captivity. Powhatan was smart enough to know that Smith was a warrior and potentially a great ally if Smith were placed in a position where he owed Powhatan his life. And Powhatan wanted weapons and an alliance with these well-equipped white men who had weapons of metal and loud weapons that could kill invisibly. With weapons like those and the support of the English, Powhatan could expand his territory and crush his remaining enemies. And now, part four of Captain Smith and Jamestown, the real story. Captain Smith entered the lists with a flourish of trumpets, attended only by a page who bore his lance. He passed his antagonist with a courteous salute. At the sound of the trumpet, the combatants met at full speed, and the Christian's lance pierced the visor of the Turk, who fell dead. Smith alighted and cut off Lord Turbishaw's head, leaving the body to his friends. The victor was received with triumphant joy in the Christian camp. The death of this champion brought great chagrin into the Turkish fortress. His vowed friend, Gruelgo, challenged Smith to single combat to regain the head of his friend or to lose his own. Smith accepted the challenge and the next day appointed. At the sound of trumpets, the combatants met. Their lances were shivered, and they passed each other unhurt, although the Turk was nearly unhorsed. They next met with pistols. Smith's armor was dinted, but they again passed unharmed. At the third encounter, Captain Smith wounded his antagonist in the left arm. Unable both to manage his horse and defend himself, the Turk was thrown to the ground, where he quickly lost his head. According to the terms of the challenge, Horse and armor went to the victor, while the body and rich apparel were returned to the town. The works of the besiegers progressed slowly. 
a few unimportant skirmishes only took place. Smith now procured leave to send a challenge into the town on his part. The message was to this effect, that he was not so enamored of the heads of the ladies' servants that he would not afford any Turkish knight a chance to redeem them and secure his own if he could win it. This challenge was accepted by a Turk named Boney Mulgro, who, having the choice of weapons, avoided the lance in the use of which Smith had proved himself so skillful, and chose pistols, battle-axes, and swords. On the following day, the champions entered the lists as before, and discharged their pistols at the first encounter without effect. Such heavy blows from the battle-axe followed as to nearly stun both Turk and Christian. Smith was not, however, so skillful with this weapon, and the Turk dealt him a blow that forced him to drop his battle-axe, and he came near following it to the ground. A great shout of triumph arose from the ramparts of Regal. But the battle was not yet won. The Turk followed up his advantage with heavy blows, which Smith, however, avoided by dexterous horsemanship, and contrary to the expectations of the witnesses, he succeeded in piercing the body of his enemy with his sword, the final weapon. The head of Boney Mulgrow followed those of his friends. After this, Smith was conducted to the pavilion of Prince Moises with a guard of six thousand men, preceded by the three heads upon lances and the horses of the conquered Turks. Captain Smith presented his trophies to the prince, who received him with an embrace and presented him a rich caparisoned horse, and a scimitar and belt worth three hundred ducats, while the Earl of Meldridge made him major of his regiment. The siege of Regal continued, and the place was at last taken after a fierce assault. The garrison was put to the sword in retaliation for the massacre of the Christian garrison from whom the Turks had taken the place. Prince Sigismund, when he came to review his army, was informed of Captain Smith's valor and services, for which he gave him his picture set in gold, and a pension of three hundred ducats. He gave Captain Smith the patent of nobility, with three Turks' heads in his coat of arms. This patent was afterward accepted, and recorded, in the Herald's College in England. Prince Sigismund at last gave up his unequal struggle with the Emperor. Transylvania became a German province, and Sigismund retired to the life of a private nobleman in Prague with an ample pension. By this means the allegiance of Sigismund's armies was transferred to the emperor, a master to whom they were so little attached that it became necessary to occupy them. The opportunity was not long wanting in those troubled times. Wallachia was then in possession of the Turks. The inhabitants revolted against the tyranny of the Waywode, or prince, of this province, and applied for assistance to the emperor. Lord Rodole was appointed Waywode in place of the Turk, whose name was Jeremy. The Earl of Meldridge, with an army of 30,000 men, was sent to support the new ruler. Jeremy met him with 40,000 Turks, Tartars, and Moldavians. A bloody battle ensued between the two pretenders to the principality, which resulted in establishing Rodole as Waywode. Jeremy had, however, gathered together another army in Moldavia and threatened trouble. The Earl of Meldrich, with 13,000 men, was sent against him. They were successful in several skirmishes, in one of which he was assisted by Smith's inventive genius. The latter manufactured fireworks, which were carried upon the tops of lances in a night attack, and so frightened horse and man that the victory was an easy matter. The end 
was disastrous, however. The Earl of Meldridge was attacked by an army of 40,000 Turks in a mountain pass. He ordered his 11,000 remaining men as best he could, planted sharpened stakes with their heads toward the enemy, with holes dug among them as his defense, and bravely encountered the multitudes of the foe. When the numbers became too much for them, the Christians retired behind their defense, and Captain Smith said, It was a wonder to see how horse and man came to the ground among the stakes. The Christians could not, however, long prevail. The Earl of Meldridge made one last effort. He formed all his men into a column and attempted to cut his way through the enemy's ranks. In this he did succeed for a time, but was at last overwhelmed. Night came on, and the Earl escaped with some thirteen hundred horsemen by swimming the river. On this terrible battlefield, nearly thirty thousand men lay dead or wounded, among them Captain Smith. Most of the dearest friends of the noble Prince Sigismund perished in the battle. Smith tenderly recorded in his history the names of some nine of his own countrymen who fell on this forgotten battlefield. Searching among the dead, the pillagers discovered Captain Smith, and judging by his rich armor and dress that he was a person of some importance, they saved him, hoping to get a good ransom. His wounds were healed, and he was taken with numbers of other prisoners to Axiopolis to be sold as a slave. Here, like beasts in a marketplace, he wrote, they were viewed by the merchants, their limbs and their wounds carefully examined, and finally they were made to struggle together to try their strength. Captain Smith was purchased by the Bashaw, or, as we should say, Pasha Bogal. A number of slaves were chained by the necks in groups of twenty and marched to Constantinople, where they were delivered to their several masters. Smith was presented by the Bashaw to his fair young mistress, Chiratza Tragabigzanda. He wrote her that his slave was a Bohemian nobleman who he had captured in battle. The young lady immediately became interested in her fine-looking young slave. She understood Italian and would make opportunities to speak with him. She inquired if he were indeed a Bohemian noble conquered by her lord. Captain Smith protested that he had never seen Basha Bogal until they had met in the slave market. She had him examined by those who could speak English, to whom he told his story. Convinced of the truth of it, she took more interest in him and treated him with the greatest kindness. Chiratza Tragabigzanda had formed a romantic attachment for her Christian slave. She had, however, no use for him, and fearing lest her mother, who may have suspected her love for him, should cause him to be sold, she resolved to send him to her brother Timur of Nalbritz in Tartary. With him, she sent a letter to this lord, requesting him to use her slave well, since she intended but to sojourn in Nebritz to learn the language and become a Turk until she became her own mistress. At the end of his journey, Captain Smith was brought before Timur in his vast stony castle. The proud Beshaw read his sister's letter and was incensed that she would look with favor on a Christian slave. He immediately ordered that his head should be shaven, a great iron collar riveted upon his neck, and that he should be dressed in a rough haircloth garment. Among hundreds of slaves, he was slave to them all, though he said, Theirs was no great choice, for the best was so bad that a dog could hardly have lived to endure. Captain Smith now had a tyrant for a master, who took delight in beating and abusing the Christian slave. In all his hopeless misery, Smith noted the manners and customs, 
religion and government of the Tartars. Of their disgusting style of living, he speaks in the strongest terms, but he praises their skillful horsemanship and endurance of hardship in war. All the hope he had ever to be delivered from this thraldom, wrote Smith, was only the love of Tragabixanda, who surely was ignorant of this bad usage, for although he had often debated the matter with some Christians that had been there a long time slaves, they could not find how to make an escape by any reason or possibility. But God, beyond man's expectation or imagination, helpeth his servants when they least think of help as it happened to him. Captain Smith was put to thresh grain at a farm more than a league from the castle of the Bashaw. Timur was accustomed often to visit his various granges. One day he visited Smith at his work and beat and reviled him so unmercifully that Captain Smith, forgetting all reason, rose in defense and beat up the Bashaw's brains with the bat which the Tartars used for threshing. There was now no hope for him in remaining where he was. His condition could not be altered for the worse. He quickly hid the Bashaw's body under the straw, dressed himself in his clothes, and filling his knapsack with grain, closed the doors of the barn, and mounting his master's horse, fled into the desert. Here he wandered for several days, not knowing the way, and yet thankful that he meant no one of whom he might ask it, since the Bashaw's clothes could not conceal the slave's iron collar, stamped with his master's sign. He at last came upon a great road whose crossings were signposts marked with a crescent for Tartary, a black man with white spots for Persia, a picture of the sun for China, and a cross for Christian lands. Captain Smith followed the grateful sign of the cross for sixteen days in fear and trembling, lest he should meet a Turk. He at last reached Ecopolis, a Russian fortress on the River Don. The governor listened to his story, relieved him of his irons, and treated him so kindly that he thought himself new-risen from death. Here he was a second time befriended by a lady, for he says, the good lady of Kalamata largely supplied all his wants. The kindly governor furnished him with letters of recommendation, and he journeyed under the protection of convoys to Hermannstadt in Transylvania. The countries through which he traveled were so desolate that he said, It's a wonder any should make wars for them. Nevertheless, in all his life he seldom met with more respect, mirth, content, and entertainment, and not any governor where he came but gave him somewhat as a present, beside his charges, seeing themselves as subject to the same calamities. We do not know how long Captain Smith was in captivity, but it could not have been many months, for he was captured in 1602, and we find him again in Christendom in 1603. When he arrived in Transylvania, he was received with joy by his friends as one risen from the grave. He says he was so glutted with content and near drowned with joy, that he would never have left his friends here had it not been for his desire to rejoice himself after all these encounters in his native country. It may be doubted, however, if his roving disposition would have suffered him long to remain content in any quiet life. He next went to Leipzig, where he found the Earl of Meldrich with Prince Sigismund, who gave him a patent of the nobility which he had previously bestowed upon him, and fifteen hundred ducats to repair his losses. Possessed of more money now, Smith seems to have forgotten his great desire to return to England, for with this means he set out to see many of the fair cities of Germany, France, and Spain. Being thus satisfied, as he wrote, with Europe and Asia, 
and hearing of wars in Barbary, he set sail in a French man-of-war for Africa. He went to Morocco, inquired into the causes of the murderous civil wars, and unable to decide which side was the most in the wrong, he refused to join either. He noted the manners and customs of the people, and returned to the vessel in which he had come, resolved to try some other conclusions at sea. Captain Smith added to his adventures yet one more, for the French vessel sustained a desperate battle with two Spanish men of war, who boarded her and set her to fire. They fought thus for two nights and a day, the Spaniards once asking a truce to parley with the captain, but the desperate Frenchman, knowing there was but one way, would have none but the report of his ordnance. They at last succeeded in beating up the Spanish vessels and making port. Captain Smith returned to England about the year 1604. His restless temperament at last found an enterprise worthy of it. Captain Bartholomew Gosnold was endeavoring to awaken an interest in the colonization of Virginia. Captain Smith entered heartily into his projects, and these gentlemen, with Mr. Wingfield and the Reverend Mr. Hunt, by persistent agitation, at last succeeded in interesting men of influence who formed a company and obtained a patent from the king. In two years more, the energetic Captain Smith would be on the way to a country with which he had not as yet satisfied his eyes, a land of promise to all bold spirits, a field for the bravest of adventures, and the greatest self-denial. Chapter 9 here inside Part 4 takes us back to Jamestown. Chapter 9. Smith's Captivity Among the Indians Let us now return to the colony at Jamestown, where the adventurous Smith was rapidly rising into prominence. But there were murmurings against him. He had not yet discovered the source of the Chickahominy River. This river flows from the northwest, and the colonists had received directions from the council in England to explore such a river, since it was supposed its head might be near the South Sea or the Pacific Ocean and a passage to the East Indies might thus be discovered. So little did the early settlers of America know of the extent of their continent. Even the colony's council reprehended Smith for being too slow in so worthy an attempt. Accordingly, in early winter, Captain Smith and his men began the ascent of the Chickahominy. In a rude barge, they penetrated to where fallen trees obstructed the passage. The discoverers only proceeded by dint of chopping away the obstacles. When at last the barge could penetrate no further, Captain Smith moored her in a wide bay out of danger and commanded his men not to go ashore. Taking with him two Englishmen and as many native guides, he pushed twenty miles higher up the narrow stream in a canoe. The river's head was found in swampy meadows, or slashes, as they're called in Virginia, but the surges of the Pacific did not roll into it as in the fabled fountain of the Roanoke. Captain Smith was the only man in the colony who did not look for an ocean over the next hill and a gold mine at every step. On reaching the source of the Chickahominy, his first thought was of the present necessity for food instead of a chimerical opening for future commercial wealth. Leaving his two men, Robinson and Emery, and their matchlock guns lighted in charge of the canoe, he went with an Indian guide in search of game. Meanwhile, the men in the barge made a tour of discovery on shore and succeeded in discovering some 300 Indian bowmen under the command of Obi Kankanoff, chief of the Pamunkey Indians, a tribe of Powhatan's confederacy. 
Chickahominy warriors set out women on the shore and had them gesture pleasingly to the English. They went ashore only to be attacked, and all but one, George Casson, scrambled back to the boat. This is what the kind indigenous natives of North America did to George Casson, and I'm sure it's something that's not being taught in today's history classes. The natives prepared a large fire behind the bound and naked body. Then a man grasped his hands and used muscle shells to cut off joint after joint, making his way through Casson's fingers, tossing the pieces into the flames. That accomplished, the man used shells and reeds to detach the skin from Casson's face and the rest of his head. Casson's belly was next as the man sliced it open, pulled out his bowels, and cast those onto the fire. Finally, the natives burned Casson at the stake, through to the bones. While this was going on, Indians attacked Smith's group, killing his companions, and captured Smith. The men brought him to one of Powhatan's younger brothers, Opie Kankanoff, who would play a significant role in later years. It appears to have been a very near thing whether Smith would be carved up and burnt in pieces too, but he claimed to be a chief, and it was not the custom to torture chiefs. Opie Kankanoff decided to take him back to Powhatan for a final verdict, but marched his captive from village to village for several weeks before taking him before the chief of chiefs. Two days after this, an Indian, whose son was dying with a wound Smith had inflicted in his skirmish with the savages, would have killed the captain had not the guard defended him. Captain Smith was believed to be a wonder worker far superior to their priests or medicine men. He was taken to the bedside of the dying savage to effect a cure. He told the Indians that he would go to Jamestown and get a water which would heal the man, but the savages were not to be thus outwitted. Captain Smith trembled to hear the Indians discuss plans for the destruction of Jamestown. Preparations were being made for this purpose, and the Indians consulted Smith about it. If he would assist them, he was offered life, liberty, and wives. Captain Smith, however, romanced about the dangers they would meet in attacking Jamestown, dilating upon the great guns, secret mines, and other engines of death. He asked permission to send messengers to Jamestown who might confirm his story. His request was complied with, and tearing a leaf from his memorandum book, he wrote a note to the colonists informing them of the danger of an attack, giving them directions as to how they should terrify the bearers of the note, and instructing them to send him some articles of which he gave a list. He entrusted this note for deliverance to the messengers who were not suspicious that it could betray their own plans, and told them just what the colonists would do what would happen to them, and what articles they would send. The messengers were much frightened by his description of the engines of death in possession of the whites. Still, they undertook the journey in the bitter cold of an unusual winter. Back in Jamestown, Captain Smith was believed to be dead. The men with the barge returning home had told the story of their attack and of the probable death of Captain Smith and his two companions. This intrepid soldier was mourned as heartily as he had been detested. When the Indian messengers neared Jamestown, they saw men sally out to meet them as Smith had told them. The fulfillment of the first item in his prophecy so frightened them that, dreading the explosive nature of the ground in the neighborhood of Jamestown and fearing the supernatural weapons of the English, they were panic-stricken and fled, leaving their note behind them. 
When night came on, however, they crept cautiously to the spot where Captain Smith had told them they would find the answer. There were the very articles he had promised them. Taking them, they returned home with no small expedition. At the account of their adventures and the sight of the promised trinkets, the Indians were all wonderstruck, concluding that he could either divine or the paper could speak. They now gave up all idea of attacking Jamestown and led Smith from village to village in a triumphal procession. Having thus traversed the dominions of a number of tribes, he was brought back to the seat of the chief of Pamunkey. Here he was put through a ceremony intended to discover whether he meant them good or evil. Early in the morning a great fire was built in a long house, probably the council house. Two mats were spread upon the ground, upon one of which the prisoner was seated. His guard retired, and he was left alone. Presently came skipping in a great grim fellow, all painted over with coal mingled with oil. He was adorned with many snakes and weasel skins stuffed with moss, and all their tails tied together, so as they met on the crown of his head in a tassel, and round about the tassel was a coronet of feathers, the skins hanging round about his head, back, and shoulders, and in a manner covering his face with a hellish voice and a rattle in his hand. This man was a priest. He began a weird invocation, accompanied by most strange gestures, as Smith wrote, and concluded by surrounding the fire with a circle of meal. Immediately three more, such like devils, painted half red, half black, adorned with red strokes to imitate mustaches, and with eyes colored white, rushed in and went through like antic tricks. These grotesque figures had danced a pretty while, as he wrote, when in came three more, as ugly as the rest, with red eyes and white strokes over their black faces. Captain Smith saw a strong resemblance in these fiends to Satan, and he must have felt anything but comfortable during their strange ceremony. They had last sat down on the mat opposite to him, three upon either side of the first comer, who was the chief priest. They sang a song accompanied by their rattles. When this was done, the chief priest made, with the greatest efforts of gesticulation, a short oration, at the close of which the priests all groaned, and the orator had laid down five grains of corn. Then followed another song, another strained oration, and a groan, when five more grains were placed upon the ground. This ceremony was kept up until the fire had been twice encircled with corn. Then in the same manner, sticks were placed between the divisions of corn. All day long, neither priests nor prisoner ate or drank, but at night they feasted merrily upon the best of provisions. Three days was this ceremony celebrated. The Indians informed Captain Smith, in sign language, that the circle of meal signified their country, the circles of corn, the bounds of the sea and the sticks his country. They imagined the world to be flat and round like a trencher, and they in the midst. The Indians one day brought Captain Smith the bag of gunpowder which they had captured and were saving until spring in order that they might plant it, as they wished to know the nature of this seed. Captain Smith did not undeceive them, thinking doubtless that this was the best use to which they could put gunpowder. The prisoner was invited to the habitation of the chief's brother, Opichapan, where he was sumptuously feasted upon bread, fowl, and wild beast. As heretofore no Indian would eat with him, although they made no objections to eating after him. 
his fate was at last to be decided. The Indians started with their prisoner for Werewokamoko, where lived the great chieftain of all the chiefs, Powhatan. And that brings us still in part four to chapter 10, Pocahontas and Captain Smith. And that story has been told so many times, I don't think we need to retell it here. But they stage a ceremony wherein Smith's life is threatened and Pocahontas lays her body in front of him, thereby saving his life, and in the Indian way of thinking, putting him forever in debt to their chief and their tribe. We'll begin, we'll begin part five with what is chapter 13, titled A Voyage of Discovery and Adventure. And it's all about Smith and his men and their discoveries all up to the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Thank you all so very, very much for listening. And we're asking all you Apple listeners to please take a minute to send us a review at Apple Podcast. I know it takes time. The 1001 Stories for the Road really needs them to rise in rankings and attract new listeners. So we would greatly appreciate it. Here are some current reviews. This one reads, Pure Gold. Mr. Hagedorn has, in all his podcasts, captured the excitement, entertainment, and professional quality of the classic radio personalities. A reliable source of excellence, John is a credit specifically to the world of podcasts and generally to the world of entertainment. A longtime fan of old time and amp, having given up on television since 1990, I am so glad to have found the 1001 podcast, especially 1001 Stories for the Road. Thank you sincerely, Keith Picot, and that's Apple Podcasts Canada, and this one. Totally binge-listened to King Solomon's Minds. That was an awesome presentation. Once started, I had to finish them all. A great way to spend the first rainy days here in California, which finally put an end to all the fires scourging the area. And that one from 3G Jerry G, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, King Solomon's Minds. Eat your heart out, Indiana Jones. Good story, well-read. Long, but great. Very entertaining. And that one from... Amanda Azataz, Apple Podcast Australia. And this one, great stories and a great narrator. Mr. Hagedorn is great as a narrator and so easy to listen to. Thanks for all the great stories. That from BMX Cruiser, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, all of the 1001 podcast. Yard work, housework, driving, laundry, scrabble. Listening to these podcasts is entertaining and informative. The work is done easier, and the trips driving long distances fly by. I love Jack London, the UFO stories, and the historic and scary ones. Don't listen to Lovecraft at night for sure. I can't wait for the second chapter of The Three Marys. These are podcasts to share, and I do. Thank you, Mr. Hagedorn. And that one from Zingin' Around, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Listen Now. John, your ability to tell stories is incredible. I've enjoyed every story and bits of history that I'd never heard before. Thank you. That from Snow Ghost 69, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. It's greatly appreciated. And those of you who have been thinking about it, this would be a great time to help us out at 1001 Stories for the Road podcast. We'll be back soon. Thank you.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.